You are now listening to Well-Fed Women, the show that's been radically changing the way women perceive health, fitness, and their bodies since 2015. I'm your host, Noelle Tarr. Submit your questions to wellfedwomen at gmail.com, and you can keep up with the show on Instagram at wellfedwomen. Welcome to the Well-Fed Women podcast. This is episode number 342. I'm your host, Noelle Tarr. My website is coconutsandkettlebells.com. I am a nutritional therapy practitioner and a certified personal trainer. And I'm here with my co-host of six and a half years, Stephanie Ruper. Today, we're going to be unpacking all there is to know about stevia. I have done way more research on stevia than I ever thought I would ever do. So this is the uh, this is the thing. This is this is it. We're talking about stevia, and as as much as we know to date in 2021, uh, the connection between digestive issues like GERD and hormone imbalances, and the fiber debate. This is a question that comes up all the time. Talk to me about fiber. Should we not? Are we getting enough? What if I'm getting too much? So, yeah, it's just like all the things. So. This is also the fiber episode, so it's all here. Uh, Before we get into the fun, if you struggle with blood sugar spikes or drops or experience symptoms of blood sugar dysregulation, like hanger and shakiness and the 3 p.m. energy crash, you can absolutely benefit from specific nutrients that are known to support the stabilization of blood sugar and metabolism, like biotin, chromium, and alpha-lipoic acid, Many of your bodily functions, such as hunger, sleep, mood, and your energy levels are glucose-dependent, which means your daily performance, like how your body performs on a daily basis, is reliant on balanced blood glucose. And many many things can disrupt your blood sugar. Steph and I have talked about this. Actually, we did a whole episode about blood sugar and how stress and diet and hormone imbalances all can dysregulate or disrupt our blood sugar balance. So the good news is that there are some amazing natural nutrients that are great for improving blood sugar, and they can be found in a new supplement from Bioptimizers. It's called Blood Sugar Breakthrough. So it's basically a compound supplement that contains research-based ingredients that have been proven to optimize blood sugar levels. Um, So it does have chromium and biotin, which are key nutrients that support blood sugar metabolism and insulin production, and berberine, which research suggests may improve insulin sensitivity, Um, Bioptimizer's blood sugar breakthrough doesn't have any cheap filler ingredients or preservatives. Like always, you know that I they are always pretty stringent on what they include in their supplements, which I really appreciate. So if you're struggling with, you know, blood sugar dysregulation, give it a try. The website is bloodsugarbreakthrough.health slash wellfed. It's funny how that just rolls off the tongue. It's not a .com, it's a .health. Um, and we have a podcast community discount because we always get the best deals. You can use the coupon code wellfed10 to get an additional 10% off. It'll be applied when you go to that website. So bl- three words, blood sugar breakthrough, B. L-O-O-D, and then sugar, S-U-G-A-R. And then the word breakthrough, B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H dot health forward slash wellfed. Our code is wellfed10. Hi, Stephanie. Hi. Um, in the last <laughs> few seconds, your voice got a little pixelated for me. Okay. Is it still um, that way? No, actually, it's better. Sorry. Oh. oh, cool. Yeah. Maybe it's just intermittent connection stuff. Yeah. Um, I okay, cool. Sorry about that. Let's move on. Hello. <laughs> hi. <laughs> Hello. So you're at your mom's. 
I am. Um, My fam. But I remember on your Instagram seeing a, a picture of a beautiful high-rise apartment in Boston overlooking Harvard University. Yeah. When do you move into that? Uh, September. It okay. is not yet September at the time that we are recording. Uh, it's very popular for leases to start in September in university towns in Boston, especially because there's sure. a lot of, you know, turnover. So, uh, so yeah, so I'm really excited. So what I did was uh, I looked for flats. I looked for apartments when I was in uh, the Boston area over the summer, found a place, signed a lease, drove home. How long was that drive? Uh, 800 and middle-ish 800 hours or miles. So it's about 800 <laughs> hours. Uh, it was, uh, yeah. Long 13 time. hours and some Oof. change. Maybe. Yeah. It was, it was long. Um, at one point traffic was just like completely stopped. There was some sort of construction that needed us to like not move at all. So we just sat there. I got out of my car, <laughs> like wearing stilettos, walking around on the, um, yeah. So anyway, yeah, I, uh, I drove uh, home to see fam and pick up some stuff and I'm going to drive back and then get settled. So cool. So do you have like how <laughs> and this is more personal details, but where are you at with like finding a job and and are you looking for even looking for a job mm-hmm. right now? Uh, I'm very excited about what I'm doing, but I'm also not talking about what I'm doing. So. Uh, yes, I am moving towards some goals that I'm interested in. They don't necessarily have to do with having a formal job per se. Um, mm-hmm. I'm looking into uh, research and I'm still in the area of the humanities and public engagement and sort of trying to use my skills, like my my diverse skill sets, you know, that I have mm-hmm. from doing all of this wonderful stuff with you and our audience and hello and thank you all very much for sticking with me and us um me it's not hard to stick with noel um and so yeah so i'm i'm looking into ways to sort of bring my skills together in terms of my knowledge of philosophy and academia and also business of a sorts so i have some ideas for how i'm going forward with that but uh, i have to do a lot more uh, legwork and a lot more discerning about, you know, what's sort of appropriate for me. So um, I'm very excited and news to follow slowly over the next several months. <laughs> That's exciting. It is. Yeah. <clears throat> it just, it makes me think about how long we've been doing this and how many iterations of our our work there has been, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I yeah. mean, initially when we started, we were bloggers and now I I think that's still a thing, but it's more so like a social media page. <laughs> you know, people blog on social media, but we were bloggers and then paleo, you know, paleo was this huge thing and we were going to paleo facts and like, you know, all the things. And then that just slowly faded away. And we've done you and I each separately and together. I've done all these different things, write a book, strong from home. I, you know, created a product and you've been doing so much like you did you even have your master? No, you had just gotten your master's, I think. Mm-hmm. And you were like yeah. just trying to, you know, thinking about getting a PhD. And then, you know, you've been through all that and done that. It's just crazy to think about how much has been um, sort of captured. Life has happened. Yeah, on this podcast, too. Yeah. 
like yeah it's definitely a repository of sorts you Mm -hmm. know and we check in regularly and yeah I uh, was actually I had already applied to do my PhD at Oxford but I hadn't yet gotten in when we first started recording Mm -hmm. so that was yeah that was way a very long time ago for me and we recorded for a few years before you even had children. Yeah, so, I, know. I think a lot of people in this community can relate to because so much has happened in their lives for those of people who have been with us from the beginning or even just like in the first few years, which is a lot of people. Most most people jumped on right away. It was a fast growing initially podcast because I don't think that there was a lot of well, I, we know there wasn't people talking about paleo for women and podcasting was so new. Um, so I think I, everybody, I know all of, all of our community can relate because they've gone through these major life changes too, you know, mm-hmm. having kids or dealing with infertility and then all of a sudden having kids and, you know, having different careers and leaving jobs and all the things. So it's, I don't know, it's cool. And that's why this podcast has always been more than just a, let me talk about nutrition science and, ans- you know, whatever, let's answer questions. It's always been a little bit about just experiencing life, <laughs> mental, emotional, mm-hmm. and and physical health and, and all the things. And like you said, checking in and just kind of reminiscing and all the things. Um, but for me and in, in my business moving forward, I've kind of been in a space and I was just <laughs> telling Stephanie this before we jumped on, like I have these moments where I'm like, holy crap, like it's like life is moving along it moves really fast and i like even just the summer just flew by and all of a sudden here we are it's like 2020 is coming to an end 2020 2021 yeah and that's what gets me because i'm like weren't we just in this like oh 2020 is over thank god and now it's like whoa this year is gone um and it's just it takes your breath away sometimes to think about how quickly it just just flies by and i mean i'm getting tons i have very dark hair so i'm just getting a lot of gray hairs and you know you see people in your lives and things in your lives in your life and you know they pass on and it's just like i don't know just everything kind of hits you like wow life goes by really fast um and we're getting you know older and i know 35 isn't oh yeah you, you just wait till you get 40 or just wait till you get 45 like i get it i know but um it just, just got, all goes by so fast. <laughs> um, and I don't know. I just want to kind of sit and enjoy the moment. But I've, I'm in this space now at, at 35 where, and I think a lot of people go through this, you know, in your 30s, I think is a pretty incredible time for women especially because you go from being, I think, um, well, I know this was my experience and your experience too, Stephanie, and a lot of people's experience where you, you, you know, in college and in your 20s, you're so wrapped up and consumed with fitness and working out and, you know, getting that body and you kind of are trapped in in that narrative, right? And you're really consumed with what people think of you and all that kind of stuff. And then you kind of get a little bit older and you mature a little bit and you start to care a little bit less about what people think about you and you care more about you know, your purpose and your passion and what makes you happy. And you kind of see through some of the BS. <laughs> um, and so, <clears throat> I, you know, I'm definitely in that space. I know a lot of you are too, but I'm just trying to figure out what to do with my business. And um, one of the things that I decided to do this year was completely 
redesign and redo my website, which I have never done ever in my life. Um, you know, what makes me happy and what I enjoy is, yes, this podcast, but I don't think this podcast can go forever. Um, you know, Steph and I have talked about that. I don't think we can just keep doing this for <laughs> until indefinitely. I have no plans to stop. I know. <laughs> I know. But I it's something I wrestle with daily. Like, is this, you know, I don't know. Are Do people still care? Is this still like relevant and do it's like i don't it's just you when you do something yep. for six and a half years it's like what else is there to like how else can we keep this fresh and exciting and continue to yep. help people yep. and um so i'm trying to still you know i've kind of taken a step back from what i think i should be doing because that's what you know in, in our business and i think you can probably relate to this too Seth. is like what sh- we kind of you know you, when you're a business owner starting your own thing you think what what are the things that i should be doing as opposed to like and i that some of that's important right because you want your business to be successful but then you kind of need you also take a step back and say well what is it that i want to do like what actually gets me excited and so i'm really I'm happy about the whole web. It's a huge redesign. I mean, I dropped some money on this, as you know, Stephanie, because mm-hmm. with your whole fiasco, which I would love to just dive deep into that story again, but we'll we'll leave that one locked away. Um, <laughs> <laughs> such a such a horrible. Oh man. Um, and I it was so nice to just be a part of your business at that point because then we could remin- we could you know get pissed together at the situation. But anyway, um, guys, be careful who you get into business with. That is, um, yeah. People fortunately, to- the primary person I've been in business with my li- in my life is Noelle. So <laughs> I got true. a whole lot of good to outweigh just like a little bit of like don't touch this. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway. I did find some a, a great team of people who are redesigning it. And I say this because we have over 350 episodes and no way for people to really search them. So I have a lot of people who are like, I want you to talk about hypothalamic amenorrhea or SIBO or whatever. And I'm like, we did that. Like we, ha- I did, did a deep dive on that. So, he, you know, and then I have to like go find the episode and all that stuff. But with the website, the new website, I will actually have like a podcast page hub where you can go and search. Like I have recategorized, it took hours, but I recategorized everything. Every episode has a category. Yeah. Well, it was so, it was so needed. And I'm doing this with recipes and everything so that you can search recipes. And I'm going to be doing more recipes moving forward because that's what I really enjoy at this stage of my life. So, um, I have those categorized better. I have, you know, I'm going to be categorizing all. I did categorize all of them, but they will be searchable and easy to find. So, like, all this content that I've just kind of created, now I'm taking a step back and saying, all right, let me make sure it's useful and people can find it. And um, and then I can really, you know, move forward with what is it that I want to do, which is likely more baking. <laughs> More cookies and brownies and recipes. Surprise! And sheet pans. I just made this sheet pan uh, steak fajitas. It was so good. So anyway, that's the phase of my business that I'm in, and we'll just see what happens from here. But um, anyway, lots of reminiscing. Yeah. Okay. uh, Thanks, memory lane. (laughs) Are are you so excited to talk about Stevia? Yeah. Yeah. I'm so excited to listen to you talk about Stevia. (laughs) Well, I want to get, but you go ahead. I want to get, I'm going to stop because I want to get your opinion on some of the things too, because I don't know what you think, which is interesting. We don't know each other's opinions, but um, this is just kind of, I was able to basically find the studies that were the most relevant, most recent and done in 
with quality in quality ways because there's like some literature from like you know 1938 that says stevia is this but it really was horribly done um and there has since i'm so sorry do you want to are you going to read the question i am but i'm just (laughs) explaining (laughs) okay don't mind me i'm gonna put myself back on mute bye no, don't go on mute. I need your thoughts. But okay. I'm I'm explaining this to you, quite frankly. But what, what I was able to do is pull a lot of these studies and say, okay, what are the most relevant ones and and the most well done, you know, research and what does this mean for the future of stevia? Which by the way, I never thought that would come out of my mouth. So I'm just going to come out and say it. You all know I don't have any products on here that I don't use personally. Most of the time I find something I love and then I go and ask them to sponsor. Element was one of the first sponsors that I had actually not heard about. Saw the product and was like, this is exactly what I've been looking for. Started using it and I think it has become my most favorite product ever that I get to talk about on the show, which is such a blessing. And I'm so thankful that they support this podcast. I use it every day. It has made such a huge difference. Just comparing last year and what I was doing in terms of my workouts in the heat. And this year, I even, I mean, even this week, I just did a 45 minute workout, had element after just one packet, had a a glass of, of element afterwards. And it I didn't feel anything like I didn't feel the fatigue. I didn't feel the dizziness, nothing. And it just made such a huge difference in my ability to recover and my energy levels. So if you are active or you're following a whole foods diet, I think that you can see such positive result from electrolyte replacement like element and that's spelled l-m-n-t electrolytes are so important because water absorption in your body is dependent upon the absorption of key electrolytes like sodium and magnesium and potassium yes it is intentionally high in sodium because we lose it so quickly when we sweat and it because when you have like a whole foods diet like so many of you are following it's naturally low in sodium And so if you are low in sodium, it shows up as dizziness and muscle cramps and headaches and fatigue and even sleep disturbances. So Element actually makes these grab and go electrolyte replacement supplements. You just take a recharge packet, which they have all different flavors, mix it with water and then you sip on it. There is no sugar, gluten fillers, artificial ingredients, and it's paleo friendly. It's the first of its kind. I used to work in the endurance athlete industry and always was looking for something like this and here it is so i've been using element regularly on workout days um i usually drink it right afterwards but now with the heat happening (laughs) the heat wave it's 97 degrees today here actually i've actually been drinking it a little bit even on my off days and it's made such a difference so there is a brand new watermelon flavor it's amazing there is a limited edition grapefruit flavor i love that they're coming out with all these new flavors for us because they know we drink it on a daily basis and the variety is great so Grab grapefruit if you can. It reminds me a lot of raspberry. It's slightly tart, but slightly sweet, which is perfect. Um, If you want to try a variety of flavors, just grab a free sample box by going to drinklmnt.com forward slash well fed. That's drink 
lmnt.com forward slash well-fed. You'll just pay for shipping and you can try all the a variety of the flavors and figure out which, which one's your favorite and just see how it, how it works for you. Try it on workout days. Try it on days that you're out in the heat. And then if you love it, come back, use our, our link and you can do the buy three boxes, get one free. That's the best value. Um, and you can pick the flavors that you want. So again, that's drinklmnt.com forward slash well-fed. Okay. <laughs> Question number one is from, from Amy. She says, Stevia, is it okay or not? I've heard some say it's way better than sugar because it doesn't raise or our insulin levels or blood glucose levels. I've also heard people say it's horrible for the gut microbiome. Most clean products have stevia, so giving it up would be hard, but I don't particularly want to put something in my body that is, that's going to destroy it. I just want to sit in the corner eating my Lily's chocolate and drinking my Zevia root beer. If that's so wrong, I'm not sure I want to be right. Um, I feel you. Jody says, great question. I've heard it's an endocrine disruptor, so I've been hesitant to use it. Amy again says, been researching this quite a bit. Unfortunately, not finding great things about it tricks your body into thinking it's going to get glucose when it doesn't can cause blood sugar swings. Also can be an endocrine disruptor. Dang it, because I use it almost daily. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So what is stevia? Stevia is an herbal plant that is typically grown in South America. It is not an artificial sweetener. It is a plant. Um, and most manufacturers use extracts from the plant to naturally sweeten foods. So what makes stevia leaves so sweet? And this is important because this is how the research is done. It's usually done with one of these two molecules. So there are two molecules that give stevia the sweet taste. One is steviocide <clears throat> and one is ribidoicide. And a lot of times this is called just called like Reb-A in studies. Um, so steviocide is sweet, but it has that bitter aftertaste that not a lot of people love. And then ribidoicide, which I might just start saying Reb-A, is better tasting. It is sweeter and it is less less bitter. So most raw and like less processed stevia products contain both molecules so if you find like raw stevia leaf that has been ground up um that's pretty much what you're going to get but with the highly processed forms of stevia like truvia and others that is only going to contain reb a and then things like truvia also contain additives like maltodextrin and erythritol so you know, not all stevia products are created equally. I don't think anybody listening to this is like, is Truvia healthy? Like, I don't, I, I know that all of us are likely wondering about stevia extract and like natural forms of stevia, not stevia with maltodextrin and a bunch of other things that are like in packets. So we'll just move forward from that. So um, I research is kind of, you know, all over the place. It's slightly conflicting in some areas. Maybe not so, but just there's some good and some bad, um, which truthfully I think is common when we're talking about additives, specifically ones that big companies can make money from. So let's talk about artificial sweeteners because some of the problem that I saw in a lot of these blog posts with people talking about stevia is that we kind of associate, we take this information about artificial sweeteners and we apply it to stevia and we just can't do that. So studies have shown that when we consume something sweet, 
This is, again, artificial sweetener like aspartame research, which, by the way, there is so much horrible <laughs> things about aspartame. Like the literature uh, time and time again is like aspartame is not good for you, <laughs> um, like in so many different ways. But studies show that when we consume something super sweet, yet provide our body with no calories, psychological changes can occur that disassociates sweet-tasting food with energy intake. So these are, again, all done on artificial sweeteners, not stevia. And this is not a biological shift. It's actually a psychological shift. And for that reason, this has a lot to do with the fact that You know, when people consume these calorie-free treats or diet sodas, psychologically, they associate it with deprivation or, in quotations, good health behaviors, right? I'm eating the no-calorie candy or the no-calorie soda or whatever or the sugar-free this or that, and so I'm being good. And we all know what that does. It kind of puts you in this state of deprivation, and you think because you're being good, you kind of negate those good behaviors with not so good ones, or you end up binging on whatever it was that you actually wanted. Um, There is no research that exists that shows stevia tricks your body into thinking it's going to get sugar when it doesn't or causes blood sugar swings. In fact, the research actually shows exactly the opposite, and there is quite a bit of it. So in favor, here are the research research that's kind of like in favor of, of stevia. Um, so this is about blood sugar, and I think that this is kind of one of those. And why I f- want to focus on this first is because a lot of people keep saying it causes blood sugar swings, which it's actually research shows the opposite. So stevia has actually been used um, traditionally as treatment for diabetics and may actually improve blood sugar control. So in one study, it's actually titled The Effects of Stevia Sucrose, which is sugar, and aspartame on food intake. Uh, participants were given a dose of either sugar, aspartame, or stevia before lunch. Compared with the sugar preload, the stevia preload resulted in lower blood sugar after the meal and a lower insulin load. So you have all these people sitting at a table. You give some people stevia extract in water, and you give some people sugar, a sugar water. They all eat the meal. The people who had sugar before the meal did not compensate with that, oh, I got calories before this meal. They still ate the same amount of calories as the stevia folks. But the stevia folks actually had lower blood sugar and a lower insulin load. So that would show us that. And again, this is like one of the few that is like done actually on humans. Um, There was another in vitro study, which basically means it's in a Petri dish, found that um, at high blood sugar concentrations, steviocide stimulates insulin release from the pancreas. So again, in vitro, we know that When you put steviocide on pancreatic cells, it stimulates an insulin release, which helps bring the blood sugar back down. And in this same in vitro study, um, it showed that blood sugar, when blood sugar is like in these normal ranges, it doesn't have the same insulin stimulating effect on the beta cells. So I'll say that again. When steviocide was like applied to like pancreatic cells, when there was high blood sugar concentrations, it it stimulated the pancreas and it produced insulin. But when that high blood sugar wasn't around, like when blood sugar was in normal ranges, like the cells knew better and they didn't actually stimulate the insulin. So it seems like it's dependent upon actual blood sugar concentrations, which is like really profound. <laughs> like... I don't even know how that would work, but it works that way. 
So while I think glucose confusion is a real issue with maybe artificial sweeteners such as aspartame, stevia is not artificial. And even in refined, like, white powdered stevia, it did not show the adverse glucose confusion in studies. So no glucose confusion. Um, the other thing that I will just say in, that's in favor of stevia, we have seen that there are some antimicrobial and anti-inflammatory impacts from, st- from stevia. So in mice, stevia side actually lowered TNF-alpha. This is actually just like, think of it as an immune-stimulating particle. Um, excess levels are linked to heart disease and cancer and other chronic diseases. So we don't want that to be too high. It also reduced inflammation and fat tissue, increased insulin sensitivity, um, and it was also found to reduce circulating levels of interleukin-6 and interleukin-10. Those are just two inflammatory cytokines that, along with the um, NF-alpha, are tied to chronic inflammation. So our immune system is what causes chronic inflammation. When our immune system is turned on and we have too much inflammation, that can cause a whole host of issues. And so we want those cytokines um, and those immune-stimulating particles not to be like running amok, right? And so steviocide had a, had a positive impact on those. Um, other rat studies have showed that insulin resistance and diabetic rats, in insulin resistant and diabetic rats, stevia actually improved insulin sensitivity, glucose tolerance, and kidney function. Overall, stevia does seem to have some sort of like anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, antibacterial properties, although the way that these interact with the human body are still up for question. So I'm not thinking like we should be supplementing with stevia because of, you know, it's going to help us fight cancer. I think we have other things that do that really, really well, like vegetables and fruits. Any things, any thoughts, Steph, before I get into some of the other, like, questionable research? (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, I think, I mean, most of my thoughts, that's very insightful and thorough. Um, I appreciate it a lot. I think most of my thoughts have to do with the, you know, more problematic, contentious, contentious stuff in the way that we end up picking things out of the literature as a society, right? Like, what do we end up listening to? I thought it was really interesting when you said, like, what does this research portend for the future of stevia? Which is funny, um, but also it's, uh, yeah, it's fascinating because sometimes, depending on where society is leaning, we'll end up, you know, we'll end up paying attention to certain parts of studies and and not other ones, right? So anyway, so it's all just, uh, it's all very... It's fascinating. Yeah. And uh, the fact that it may actually be, you know, good for you does Mm -hmm. seem it also seems to, you know, bear out in the few little, you know, the overviews I tried attempted to make of the stevia literature. But yeah, (laughs) doing a doing review of any kind of scientific body of literature takes a really long time and is really challenging. Just like Mm. (laughs) quick note. um, But from from what I've, you know, from what I've dipped into, that seems uh, it seems it seems reasonable. There's also not a ton of research. And so we like, you know, we do what we can and we say something, you know, we see something about IL-6, interleukin-6 or or what have you in the immune system. And we're like, okay, like this tentatively means maybe possibly a beneficial effect on chronic inflammation. Uh, But it's definitely not like a like a super, you know detailed, complete picture that would take tons and tons of studies. But I like what it's pointing to anyway, in some. I, 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 you know, I think it's important to note that there are no such thing as unbiased opinions. Everybody has biases, period. And so when we're 
interpreting things as a human being, as a person, um, we are always going to have biases. And I will admit to that. I have my own biases in many different ways. But if you are, you know, assessing something and you want to find that there are alarming things and it's bad, it's pretty easy to prove it's bad. Um, If you're thinking that it's fine and you, you know, you're the makers of Zevia and you want to say Stevia is healthy for you, then you're going to find plenty of things to say. You know, you could write a whole comprehensive article about why Stevia is fine for you. Um, So I think that we as as consumers, um, as educated consumers, have to always be able to approach these types of things, health decisions, understanding that when we are reviewing something, somebody's podcast or somebody's article or whatever, they may have their own biases. They do have their own biases. And so we have to be able to look at both sides of that story and look at both opinions and both biases and then create our own, formulate our own opinion from that. And I know that's hard and it's not clear cut and all the things, but that's life. <laughs> um, and I, I, I think a lot of the people that I appreciate who I've always followed and, and trust their opinion, who are actual, you know, physicians and stuff like that, they're willing to say, I was wrong about this. You know, I said this before, but I'm wrong now. I think a lot of people get stuck in their opinions about, well, you know, I said all this stuff and now I just, I need to, you know, keep saying it. Whereas quite a few people have, I know, they've come on, who have even come on this podcast, you know, and that was the whole paleo movement. Everybody thought that, you know, this, this whole diet was the, the, it should go this way. And then it was like, yeah, we were wrong about that. Or, you know, how about when you had the fish oil, we had all had the fish oil calculator online. This is for the youngins won't, won't remember this, but you know, there was this whole fish oil calculator online and people were taking like 15 things of fish oil a day to get their omega-6 to omega-3 ratio back in balance. Um, And so it, you know, we a lot of people had to say, yeah, that was wrong. <laughs> Not a good idea. Um, and I appreciate that about a lot of people that are in this community and in, even in the holistic community in general. So some of the, the things that I, I find questionable about Stevia, um, there are only really two endocrine disrupting studies. So when we're talking about endocrine disruption. Number one, titled Stevia side acts directly on pancreatic beta cells to secrete insulin. We already kind of talked about another study that ha- above where this we saw this. Um, but this is a study that people say means stevia is an endocrine disruptor because it independently creates insulin secretion. But it's an in vitro study, meaning it was done in a very controlled environment of a Petri dish. So it had pancreatic beta cells of mice. They wanted to see how it responded to steviocide, a molecule from stevia leaf. I don't necessarily think that this translates to how things would happen in the human body necessarily. Um, and we have no idea how that would actually impact blood sugar within the complexities of the human body, especially in relation to like how much blood sugar is actually in the bloodstream. Because we saw before in this other in vitro study that if there was not a high levels of blood sugar, it didn't actually stimulate a, a large insulin res- release. Um, and furthermore, I just think we get, you know, this is one of those things that we kind of do as a culture. We think that something is bad, like we know insulin resistance is bad, and so we don't want too much insulin being stimulated because then that can lead to insulin resistance. But insulin secretion isn't a bad thing, like inherently a bad thing. It's what helps nutrients be delivered into cells, especially within the context of healthy metabolic function and insulin sensitivity. And 
the hypothesis from this study is actually kind of the opposite of what you'd think. So this potentially very small impact on insulin may actually be why we've seen it have a positive impact on blood sugar and blood sugar regulation. And then if you look at another study that was done in 2000, very similar to this one, which I, I mentioned before, like the other in vitro study, it showed that when there was these high blood sugar concentration, stimula, um, steviocide stimulated this insulin re release from the pancreas, which helps to bring you know blood sugar back down and into normal ranges. But it also showed that stevia knew better um, and it didn't have the same insulin stimulating effects. So the I, I kind of wrote down here exactly what was said, what, or like the results, okay? Because like every time you see a study, it'll have a result and it'll say like, this this means we need to do X or this, you know, especially if it's just very preliminary, like an in vitro study, which is not conclusive whatsoever. But it said the insulin atropic effects of steviocide and steviol, again, two of basic extracts from stevia, were critically dependent upon the prevailing glucose concentrations. So... The in vitro study seemed to conclude that the, the impact impact on insulin. Sorry, I just had a little buzz. Um, so the in vitro studies seem to conclude that its impact on insulin is really dependent on blood sugar levels. And I think that that's kind of what my takeaway was from this. Again, one, it's an in vitro study. It's on mice, pancreatic cells. We really don't know how that is going to apply to human, you know, digestive tract and hormonal function and all the things. Um, and two, we have these other studies that actually show. Just this varying um, insulin response. The other endocrine disrupting study that showed that when high doses of steviol are exposed to human sperm cells, so now we have human sperm cells in a petri dish, um, very attractive, and <laughs> we add steviol to those cells, um, it experiences, and I know you're not actually seeing them, but whatever, it's just the visual for me. Uh, it experiences an increase in progesterone activity while also blocking progesterone receptors. I'll say that again. Human sperm cells in a in a petri dish, we add steviocide. It increases progesterone activity and also blocks progesterone receptors. What does this mean? It means that more research is needed. <laughs> this is what I got from it. Um I don't think this proves anything about how steviol would impact the female body, female hormones, female progesterone, female estrogen. Like, I, I trying to make claims about sex hormone balance from this in vitro study is not helpful. <laughs> um, I don't, I, I just don't think we can really, it's not worth like freaking people out about their progesterone levels when. Human sperm is not, I mean, I like that, you know, we have this little bit of information, but it, to me, it's just like, okay, cool, let's figure out what to do from here. Not necessarily we can pull any sort of conclusions from it. For fertility, which I do know that people were were kind of worried about, um, in 2019, so some of the older research said that like, oh, it caused fertility issues, but again, that was really done poorly. So they redid it in 2019 with better methods. Um and this it, it study actually showed that stevia reversed decreased fertility. So it improved testosterone production and sperm count and motility in diabetic rats, which is huge. I think what was happening there potentially is that, you know, if you have a diabetic population or diabetic, you know, male rats and you improve their whole metabolic function, you're going to see improved fertility, like improvement in complications. 
And then the last study, sorry, I hope this is okay to fo- easy to follow. There's two under fertility, and this is the last one. And then we're going to just talk about the, the whole gut issue because I do feel like that's the place where we need definitely need to find more information. So the second one about fertility, just to kind of put your mind at ease, um, this was done pretty recently. Effect of steviocide on growth and reproduction. One study found that doses of steviocide up to 2.5 grams per kilogram of body weight per day did not affect the fertility of hamsters even after three generations. For humans, this would translate to about 0.34 grams per kilogram. So a person weighing about 150 pounds would need to consume almost 24 stevia packets every single day to reach that dose. Um, and that is far more than anybody would reasonably consume specifically in this community, especially. And I think that they were doing that because now we have all this research. It's like stevia's healthy and it's anti-cancer and it's helps regulate blood sugar. And so you do need to, stevia has to be like dosed out like you have to have a pretty high dose to see some of those effects or those you know positive impacts so now we're looking at these high doses like does it actually have a negative impact let's say on fertility and recent literature says no so the whole gut thing um i don't there is no conclusive evidence done on humans that shows that stevia negatively impacts your gut microbiome or can cause dysbiosis or anything like that As far as we know, stevia isn't actually broken down at all in the gut, so it seems unlikely that it would cause any specific gut problems. Um, Most of the studies kind of come to this conclusion that stevia doesn't improve your gut function, but because it's not broken down, it's not a prebiotic. So it's not like... It's not like... It's not a benefit to your gut, but, you know, a lot of things aren't. Like, it's not a fiber, for example. Stevia does have antibacterial properties. It can actually con- control severe born, um, severe foodborne pathogens, things like that would be E. coli and salmonella and staph. There was, and this is the last thing, there was one study um, that was done in 2019. And Interestingly enough, because I like to look at like what everybody's saying about studies, you know, as I'm drawing my own conclusions, some bloggers say this study shows stevia negatively impacts gut bacteria. Others say this study shows stevia can actually benefit gut bacteria. And I was like, hold on, why are we getting this? So luckily, the whole study is because a lot of times you just get like, here's the summary. But this whole study was was available to view. So I was able to kind of really break it down. So what they did was they tested water, which is your control, um, stevia extract and water, prebiotics, and then stevia extract with prebiotics. The conclusion was that the animals that received prebiotics, whether alone or with the Reb-A, had a reduced fat mass, food intake, and gut permeability. So it actually decreased gut permeability, which I think is you know, interesting. Adding Reb-A did not interfere with the benefits of the prebiotic except for a significant reduction in short-chain fatty acid. So short-chain fatty acids is something that probiotics produce that are nourishing to the gut. So it slightly reduced this like probiotic, you know, short-chain fatty acid probiotic thing that is produced in your gut, which we could say, okay, that sort of negatively impacts the gut, right? Ish. (laughs) ish. Uh, In the current study, this is in quotations, in the current study, we found Reb-A altered certain microbial taxa, T-A-X-A, 
which is interesting. Had to look that one up. That means how microorganisms are actually grouped together compared to the control group, but prebiotics seem to have a greater impact on gut microbiota gut microbe composition, even when consumed along Reb-A. So Reb-A consumption reduced members of bifidobacteria, but increased the proliferation of five other strains. So while the Reb-A plus prebiotics, we saw a reduction in bifidobacteria, which I think is, again, something to pause and say, why was that? That's interesting. Why was this very important, healthy strain of probiotics reduced in the gut? To me, that's like, hmm, we need more research there. But at the same time, it also reduced gut permeability and other five other strains proliferated and, and grew, beneficial strains. So I, um, let me see if there's any other, oh, basically the end result from the study was like, hey, we need future studies to examine the weight and the metabolic outcomes of Reb-A consumption in, in populations that exhibit, exhibit dysbiotic gut microbiome compositions. In their case, they're talking about people who are obese or diabetic. Um, so my conclusion, this is the end. We made it. It seems like the presence of a diverse diet. So when you're consuming prebiotic foods and probiotics and plenty of plant material and carbohydrates, stevia is not going to be a problem. I think we are way over scrutinizing something that is taken in a very small dose for the majority of the community. I don't, you know, when we had the artificial sweetener movement, people would pop open, you know, four packets of aspartame and stir it into their tea and have that multiple times a day. That's kind of problematic. But I don't think that a lot of us are consuming up to 26 packets of stevia a day or even, you know, consuming, if you're consuming one zevia a day, which, you know, it's just not a lot. It's not a lot. And so that one little instance of, oh, is it going to decrease my bifidobacteria, like in my gut, maybe a little tiny bit like the concentrations are just so so tiny and is that going to impact your health long term i don't know um i i i would say probably not uh especially if you are doing all the other things like within the context of you know a healthy diet um my only caution here and i would like to hear your thoughts on this too steph is that i would not use stevia and emit all carbs which a lot of people who do use a lot of stevia are that keto low carb community. Um, and I think that that could be, that's where we need to kind of pause and take caution because this like high fat, low carb dieting, you're already reducing a lot of this necessary prebiotic material that you need. You could develop food intolerances um, pretty quickly or loss of tolerance with a lot of those foods. And then, you know, if you're using a bunch of stevia, like that could potentially be a negative situation for your gut microbiome, just in general. Um, but the majority of the evidence seems to indicate that stevia, when used like in reasonable quantities, is harmless or potentially has some small benefits, like when we're looking at blood sugar regulation. And a lot of holistic doctors and biochemists like Chris Kresser and Chris Masterjohn, who we have interviewed, Chris Masterjohn, we've interviewed Rob Wolf on this podcast. That's the general consensus from, every, you know, they're pretty comprehensive articles about that that break it down. Um, and my consumption personally is very small. Like, I use honey when I sweeten baked goods, but I will have a Zevia 
Zevia, whatever. Um, when I am having like, you know, I use it as a mixer for alcoholic an alcoholic beverage. By the way, I don't think alcohol is like improving my health either, but I do drink it sometimes. So it's like you just I think we're blessed in this country to be able to over scrutinize things like stevia extract, you know, and I think we have to look, be able to see that privilege and say, OK, like is there are a lot of things we know that can improve your health. There's a lot of things that we know we should that are not going to improve your health. Um, smoking, uh, sitting, not exercising. Um, you know, not getting enough vitamin D and sunshine, not taking care of your mental health, uh, trans fats. So uh, we can take a lot of this, that information, vegetable oils. And I think we can do a lot more. And this is kind of the premise of Steph and I's book, which is like, you can do so much just by doing these big, huge shifts and changes and focusing less on like these tiny little things that kind of drive you mad like stressing about the stevia extract or your zevia is going to do more harm than the zevia will talk to me about your thoughts yeah well i i i can't say i disagree with anything you've said i when i saw this stevia question come up a few days back or what have you i pulled up some blog posts and looked into claims that were being made stevia is an endocrine disruptor exclamation mark and or period right and started digging into the studies and i just i want to be clear how incredibly complicated all of this is <laughs> so um i'm looking at different in vitro studies right looking at an in vitro study and there is a certain concentration of progesterone or some iteration of progesterone, right? And a certain concentration of some iteration of stevia, right? And combined together in a certain way for a certain amount of time. And I am not a biochemist and don't know what the norms are in the community, right, for certain concentrations and certain media and certain amounts of time and certain cleaning protocols. And there's just, <laughs> there is so much to science being done. And I think when you have very few studies, it is, A, it's just, it's really, I can't, I can't assess. <laughs> I can't assess because I'm not a biochemist. Like I can look at competing claims and weigh them an attempt to suss out who's in which camp and which kinds of literature and which kinds of communities and compare and contrast what might be motivating them and, and get to like a, a bottom, whatever, something I might. But it's really, really hard. And I can't like, do I think it's reasonable to make a blanket statement about a compound with a couple of in vitro studies? It might be, it might be, but I can't even say if it is because I don't know how to do the science well enough. Uh, but my hunch would be no. Like, would it be reasonable to say this needs more research or I find this concerning, I want to look into it more or what have you? Yeah, sh you know, yes. But um, um, yeah. So generally speaking, I just, I very much, I very much, I think I, I sympathize with Noel's, I agree with Noel's um, assessments. And 
primarily, you know, I see, <laughs> I see the question, it says stevia and I'm like, okay, probably what it's going to come down to for me. And maybe this is just my bias, right? <laughs> I mean, it is not maybe it is my bias, um, circling into like, okay, or what's a, my bias is driven my, by my values and my priorities and my priority is wellness. And I think a really important part of wellness is not freaking out about tiny details that don't really seem to be all that alarming. Can tiny details be really alarming? Yes. Are they in this case? No. Um, so like Noelle said, stressing out about stevia, having the privilege to stress out about stevia could do worse for you than having it occasionally. Now, if you're in a position in a community where people's health is quite um, fragile or complicated and you have to make a judgment call, I understand why you might want to err on the side of caution and say, you know what, don't go for it because I'm erring on the side of caution. Sure. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, especially because I'm in this, I have this responsibility or what have you and all of these people. And uh, yeah, we're going to err on the side of caution and not go for it. I absolutely get that. And also if you're doing, if you're consuming a lot of stevia, then I might dig more into it, you know, if it's going to be really significant part of your food. And especially if you're working on certain health conditions, yeah, sure. Like I, I would look into it, but generally speaking, it's like anything you consume, nothing is perfect. And very few things will help you unilaterally, you know, like food is food and has effects. <laughs> And hopefully the net effect is more conducive to your well-being than not, right? Um, so am I going to avoid stevia? No. Is stevia a really important part of my diet? No. Uh, I personally find that eating sweet things makes it hard for me to not eat sweet things. I just, I don't mm -hmm. like, I don't like sweet. I just get wrapped up in it. Noelle and I are obviously very, we've always been very different in that regard. <laughs> um so I tend to not do a whole bunch of sweet, but that's fine. That's me. That's my preference, you know, and I, okay, that's it. No, I think that was an, it's, that's an important thing to recognize our bias. You and I, we have our own personal experience with, you know, dieting and diet culture and being super hyper-focused on the amount of calories in the gum that you're chewing and once you get past that and see the kind of the BS and, you know, realize it's not about the little things and it it's really not about the, the Oreo that you eat or whatever. It's not about the small things. It's a, it's about the big things and your mental health has, is, has to be as prioritized as your physical health because your mental health is your physical health. And so I think our both of our biases come from our history and our knowledge and also just years and years and years and years into this, which is, I don't think it's the, the stevia extract that is going to be the detriment to your health. We know how impactful things like just basic stress, you know, is. Um, and I personally, like, I, I think that I'm not going to avoid it. I don't see, I may in five years, there may be all this research that comes out that says it's a, it's horrible for your gut and look at what it did and all the things. I don't think the literature necessarily shows that now or the, you know, preliminary research shows that now that that will be the case, but you know, things can change. And 
maybe I'll avoid it, but you know, and I'll, I'll change, you know, my thinking. And I think that that's, that's good too. But for right now, and especially the amount that it actually is included in my diet, um, it's just not really worth uh, stressing about now. All of this is to say also, stevia is not a necessity for health, right? I mean, not necessarily. So if you want to avoid it just to be safe, ain't no problem with that. You don't need stevia. It's fine. <laughs> it's just don't don't use it. Find something else. Use honey. Use something, you know, something else. Um, so it's it's not going to hurt you by not including it at the same time. All right, let's move on to question number two. This is from Courtney. She says, any thoughts slash research on the connection between GERD and hormone imbalance? A little backstory. I have PCOS, tested negative for SIBO, only experienced GERD slash heartburn in the last two weeks of my cycle. Working with a naturopath to deal with the PCOS, she's taking DIM and doing liver support, and it's nearly eliminated the GERD. Anyway, that's a lot of acronyms in one place. <laughs> yeah. So I actually, I think that um, the my response to this is, is reasonably uh, straightforward, which is that uh, the... So GERD is, is it an oversimplification to say GERD is heartburn? <laughs> it's like um, severe acid reflux. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. So, um, and it happens when the muscle that separates your stomach from your esophagus, the sphincter, um, loosens, right? So it's like, it's a tight ring of muscle. And when you eat, it opens and closes for you. And that's, that's how things proceed. And if this ring of muscle gets looser, then food can sort of end up wandering back up your esophagus. Uh, it can also happen if you say you eat like a really heavy, a really big meal after not having eaten for a while because your stomach is expanded, expanding and that sort of thing. Um, but generally speaking, that's, uh, that's, and it can be caused by a wide variety of things. Uh, but one of the things that can loosen it is uh, progesterone, which is just really interesting. And this is why um, heartburn tends to uh, be a lot more prevalent for women during pregnancy. Uh, not everybody who's pregnant experiences heartburn, but uh, so uh, yeah, it actually completely makes sense that while you are working on getting your hormones in balance, uh, that other systems in the body that are affected by hormones, which by the way is most of them in one way or another, um, will also have some kind of response. You know, it's it's really remarkable. There are estrogen receptors everywhere, uh, progesterone receptors everywhere, um, and different, you know, it's just, uh, yeah, they play roles in, in body systems for sure. Um, blood vessels, neurotransmitters, gut, skin, bones, you name it. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, um, their hormones are, you know messenger molecules, essentially, and, and in a lot, of, a lot of ways. So, um, so yeah, so that's my answer. Yeah, cool. I agree. I, um, I think it makes total sense. And I, we've kind of answered questions before about just how hormone issues and digestive issues are, are connected. 
um, you know, this is this is holistic health, folks. It's not just digestion and it's not just hormone imbalances. They're very much so interconnected. Um, and I do think, you know, when you have gut infections or when you have overgrowth of a, a bad bacteria in your gut, it can cause inflammation. Um, we know GERD is actually caused by or, you know, <clears throat> the more recent school of thought is that it is not actually caused by too much stomach acid. So when we take stomach acid suppressing medication, we're actually creating more of an issue. It's actually potentially caused by too low stomach acid and not um, a healthy gut microbiome because what's actually happening is that bloating and distension and that, you know, whatever you're experiencing downstream, so stomach and your uh, small and large intestine, is actually creating pressure, which causes the sphincter uh, that separates your esophagus and your stomach to malfunction and let a lot of the stomach acid or the contents of your stomach kind of flow up. Um, and so there's a lot of, you know, complicated things that can happen there. But essentially, you know, if, you know, likewise on, on the reverse side of that thinking is like, you know, if you have gut issues and you're, you're dealing with gut inflammation and you're experiencing GERD, you're also likely experiencing a hormone imbalance because hormones have to be, which we talked about last time Steph and I were together, you know, hormones have to be properly detoxed. They have to be eliminated from the body and inflammation in your gut and inflammation in general can cause major hormone imbalances like chronic cortisol production impacts everything about your endocrine system. So if you're proactively doing these things to support your liver so that, you know, hormones are detoxed uh, properly and, ex and eliminated and, and estrogen is not reabsorbed um, and you are working on insulin sensitivity and you're working on your metabolic function and you're doing all these things, that's also going to have the, the a holistic effect on your digestion. Your digestion is going to improve um, overall. You're going to have experience less chronic stress, chronic cortisol, um, and things are just going to be able to function better. So it makes total sense. Um, <clears throat> the last question is from Deb. She says, hello, I'm a huge fan of the show, equally enjoying the knowledge I gain from each episode and the banter between Noel and Stephanie. Priceless stuff. That's very sweet. Thank you, Deb. I'm interested in learning more about the F word, fiber, and how it interacts with hormones and gut health and all the things. Eating a whole foods diet, for me personally, means lots more fiber than recommended daily amounts for women. 40 grams isn't out of the norm. I drink lots of water. I don't have any related gut issues. However, I've heard that too much fiber can inhibit absorption of certain nutrients or cause problems with hormones. I've had a zinc deficiency issue over the years, and I am interested in conceiving my second child, so I'm trying to balance my health. It's been hard finding any information, reputable or otherwise, online. My question is, if too much fiber is bad for absorption and hormones, how do whole foodies focus on all the fruits and veg and whole grains and not overdo it? Thanks for being witty, knowledgeable advocates for women, Deb. Thank oh, you, Deb. Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. Wow. Apples, apple call. Ooh. Team Pinata? Panova and or Panata? Have you heard of these? Not. Data must be gathered. <laughs> <laughs> Research must be done. Cool. New apple to try. <laughs> um, that's fun. Um, Deb, I'm really I'm really excited about this question. I, uh, I did some, I did some learning. Um, so I'll, it's very interesting. It's something that I've thought about off and on in my life and not really dug into it. So I was, I was excited about digging into it a little bit more. Um, 
I think it's fascinating. I'm going to start with hormones um, because uh, I think it's, I think a lot of people who are uh, in this kind of community do eat a lot of fiber and are also uh, struggling with um, hormones or, you know, I've talked talked with a lot of women working on hypothalamic amenorrhea and that sort of thing. Uh, it's very uh, interesting. So uh, I think there's a lot of studies done in this area. I think the most prominent one uh, had about 250 women of like, quote unquote, reproductive age between 18 and 44. Uh, and it followed them for two cycles. And a lot of the research uh, before this had only, you know, followed for one cycle or had taken uh, like readings of hormones on a day, but not necessarily followed. And what looking at a couple of cycles does is demonstrate the possibility that there might be, and what they were looking for is like an ovulation. So like a, a decreased capacity to, to ovulate uh, and also hormone concentration levels. Uh, and in this study, women who ate more than uh, the... At, at least the recommended dose or higher. So I think that's uh, 22, I want to say it's 22 grams that they looked at in the study. Um, a fiber daily did have, a low, on average, lower uh, estrogen, progesterone, LH, and FSH levels than others. Uh, they were also, uh, I think, almost uh, like quite a bit at a higher risk for anovulation, right? So... They also controlled for body weight, race, exercise levels, and calorie intake. Because, you know, my, an initial thought might be, well, maybe they're eating fewer calories. Maybe they're exercising a lot more. Maybe this is what's, you know, leading to the um, lower levels. But it, it doesn't quite seem like it. Now, studies, of course, are not perfect, right, in terms of um, being able to account for extraneous variables or being able to make sure that, um, you know, uh, everything is uh, followed and, and sorted in in those ways or reported, uh, but yeah, so it actually does seem like uh, hormone levels were lower. One thing that they couldn't control for is stress, <laughs> um, which I think is important. Um, another thing about the study is that the number of of women who um, ate this much fiber or higher was uh, relatively you know small, um, and. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot here. There's a lot of complexity. It was only two months long. Here's the thing: um, your body is like once a hormone gets into your gut, it is its intended destination is excretion. And it can be reabsorbed and often is. And so what's happening here is like the fiber is binding with estrogen, as a example. Um, as a waste product and yes, excreting it. Now, if you don't have as much fiber, you're going to reabsorb it. Generally speaking, women benefit from more fiber because hormone levels, generally speaking, tend to be higher than we might want, like across the population, generally speaking, um, because estrogen reabsorption is a source of estrogen dominance uh, and hormone reabsorption in general, along with a bunch of other things, right? And so it's very tricky because if your hormone levels are lower and you want them to be higher, reabsorbing could help with that. But at the same time, why is the body 
sort of reliant on this reabsorbed estrogen? Is that because it's not making enough? Is that because it's stressed, right? Is that uh, because of some kind of um, thyroid disruption? Is that because of, again, because of stress, because of low sleep, because of all these different factors related that may be correlated with eating a higher fiber diet or not, right? Um, that make it harder for our bodies to like stay up on how much hormones they want to be producing, right? Um, so I would say eating more fiber, generally speaking, wouldn't necessarily be bad. <laughs> you catch how many like qualifying terms there were in that sentence. Wouldn't necessarily be bad. Um, and at the same time, we want to support our hormone production systems as much as we can by reducing stress and making sure we're exercising to a amount that is healthful and, and conducive to our flourishing um, and, and all that sort of stuff. And, and lower, um, greater fiber plus lower estrogen uh, levels is associated with um, decreased risk for uh, breast cancer in some studies, right? And so, you know, there, there are trade-offs here, but I, I think generally speaking, I wouldn't I wouldn't argue against fibrous foods, especially because they tend to be so nutrient-rich, which brings me to my second point, and it'll be shorter. There is a very minor amount of possible suggestion that certain like shape or charge of molecules, so like calcium is the one looked at the most, uh, may bind with some kinds of fiber and be excreted. But it seems to be the case that not really. <laughs> and also, fibrous foods tend to be more nutrient-rich. And so if you're increasing the amount of fibrous foods that you're eating, your net gain is going to be towards more nutrient absorption than otherwise. Um, so I wouldn't argue against fiber in either case, unless you were taking like a fiber supplement and eating a nutrient-poor diet. Then I might be a little bit concerned. Concerned. But even then, when these variables were all controlled for, it seems uh, a little bit murky, but most likely that there's not a issue, a big issue here with absorption. And then also, um, if you're increasing the amount of nutrients that you're getting when you're eating this stuff, then it's definitely net in favor of nutrients. So um, I'm team fiber. Also, here's my bias. I eat a ton of fiber, <laughs> a ton. So uh <laughs> Yeah, so I'm probably like in in favor of arguing for it in part driven by that, uh, but at the same time, um, it doesn't seem because of the health benefits of eating fiber. I, I'm I'm yeah, I'm for it. And like soluble fiber is great for your liver and just um, and your gut bacteria. Like there's there's a lot to be said for it. I used to eat fiber one cereal. Yeah, is so that like gross. the like the, the like the little like gray? It looks like it's yes. like gravel kind of. Yes, like gray. okay. <laughs> it's like tan gravel. Yeah, it looks yeah. like little yep. sticks. Yep. So gross because I, you know, issues, y'all issues, college issues. Anyway, um, I will just say that I agree, and I think that was a good assessment. And I didn't look at the studies, so I'm glad you did. Um, I will just explain that fiber is a non-digestible dietary carbohydrate. It's found in plants. It's exclusively in fruits, vegetables, grains, and legumes. So fiber passes through our digestive tract mostly intact. The recommended intake is actually 19 to 38 grams a day. 
So I don't think that, you know, 40 grams is like out of the question, like you're just so high up there. But um, anyway, there are two types of fiber, insoluble and soluble, because we've gotten this question before. Um, soluble fiber is actually the type of that dissolves in water. So again, soluble, it dissolves in water. It's a gel-like material. So that's nice. Um, and it slows movement through the digestive tract. So if you're experiencing like, you know, diarrhea, take more, eat foods with more soluble fiber, things like sweet potatoes and white potatoes and actually apples. Like so pectin is a popular soluble fiber. fiber. Um, and then insoluble fiber does not dissolve in water. It's great for people who are constipated because it kind of bulks up your stool, moves it through the digestive tract. Um that would be things like nuts, beans, cauliflower, wheat is mostly that insoluble fiber. Why fiber is so wonderful? It has a lot of health benefits, which Steph was just talking about. And of course, it helps to excrete, you know, a lot of this like conventional hormone advice is like up your fiber intake. But what the thing that they don't talk about is that you can't just like add fiber to, you know, there's this, all these like, I'm sure everybody's seen the fiber that you can stir into your drink. And that is actually not at all what studies are talking about when we're looking at all the benefits of fiber. In fact, a lot of the studies that have been done um, show that they don't have the protective benefits like they like the, that fiber doesn't have the same impact on our body as does like fiber from whole foods. So a lot of processed cereal and foods and all that stuff are not heart healthy. They're not going to be beneficial for your health in the same way that whole foods are. So that's really important, which I don't think, again, uh, people listening are like, oh, I'm going to go buy whatever fiber one cereal or the fiber that you stir into your orange juice or whatever and think that they're getting the same health benefits. But the, the benefits are it promotes peristalsis and gut health, um, gut health because the fibers are prebiotics and they actually help to feed probiotics, so important prebiotic material for your gut. Um, it improves blood sugar control. So studies show soluble fiber actually slows the absorption of carbohydrates can, and can help support healthy blood sugar levels. It improves satiety and therefore hunger. This is why Steph and I talk about calories not needing to be counted or tracked so, you know, tightly. And then our underlying theme of our book is quality matters because, you know, it that affects what's absorbed, how you feel, are you hungry, are you not, um, and how your body responds. It actually impacts your metabolic health. And we know that your metabolic health, it like impacts your entire health. Um, and then it also binds to toxins. We already talked about that. I don't think... So here's the deal with like, is fiber a bad thing? We we do know a bit about plant cell walls and how they impact like nutrient accessibility and digestibility. Fiber can actually inhibit the absorption of certain micronutrients. So you're asking about like zinc. Um, yes, that can happen when consumed in really large quantities. But we do know that cert like certain things like cooking uh, improves the bioavailability of nutrients and things like sprouting and fermenting and soaking. So I think it's important to strike a balance between your raw plant food intake and then vegetables that have been cooked and also grains that have been like soaked and sprouted and stuff. So just to make sure that you're getting enough micronutrients. That's all. 
So cook your cook sometimes, cook some veggies sometimes. If you're going to eat rice or beans, soak and sprout them. I soak my rice in a little bit of apple cider vinegar and water and salt. And that kind of breaks down a lot of the um, anti-nutrients and makes those micronutrients more bioavailable. So that's my recommendation is just make sure that you're having a little bit of, of both. So I'm not sure. I've never tracked my fiber intake. I don't know what it would be, but I do eat mostly veggies. So <laughs> vegetables Me and neither. But I'm just, yeah. Mine is very large. <laughs> I've never <laughs> tracked it, but it's very large. This was another long one. We're trying to fit a lot, apparently, into these episodes, um, Yeah, which I hope that was helpful. So that's it. You got anything else? No. Okay. okay. For more uh, from Stephanie, you can follow her at stephanie.ruper or at Healthy Empower on Instagram. My Instagram handle is at coconuts and kettlebells. I'm on Instagram pretty regularly. And Steph is too. She, she shares fashion advice and I just share recipes and, and <laughs> brownies. So what more do you want? All you need to follow is Steph and I for brownies and shoes. Like I just, <laughs> uh, uh, that's it from us. Thanks for being here. We'll talk to you next week.